church now, so. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Thank you. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we open your word, that which you have spoken, that which is relevant to us today, that which is powerful. We'd ask, Lord God, that our ears might be open to hear, that your word might be planted deeply within, that it might be fruitful. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going through 1 Thessalonians under the theme of a church for the darkest hour because this church was founded in a difficult place in difficult times, but it's a church that thrived, and it thrived rapidly. There are valuable things for us to learn as we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ from 2,000 years ago, uh, a church that uh, that thrived. And so uh, looking at this church for a darkest hour, just to bring you up to to speed, chapter 1, we talked about the need to be a converted church, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, spent a few weeks on the theme of the need to be an authentic church, a, a, a real church that is Christ's church, which now brings us to chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. I invite you to follow along as I read. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. They do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. We'll conclude the reading of God's word. Together for the Gospel is a conference that many of you know because I've testified before has had a profound impact on my ministry and preaching. Uh, it started in 2006. It's a biennial conference held in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Over 12,000 attended it last week uh, under the theme of distinct from the world. Uh, I had had the privilege of attending the the first four of those conferences. I haven't attended the the, the last three, but I did follow on the internet. haven't listened to all the sessions yet. I've listened to several of them. At this year's conference, on, uh, on Wednesday, uh, the speaker was David Platt, who preached a message titled, 
Let justice roll down like waters. Racism and our need for repentance. A message he preached from Amos chapter 5. His message resulted in some social media backlash. Like, in a quote, Farewell, David Platt, this is a disgrace to expository preaching. It's not the first time a defense like this has been used to avoid this topic. There was a follow-up article in, in Christianity Today Online that opened with these words. Quote, Attention, prominent white pastor, if you want to avoid controversy, do not preach sermons on race at large evangelical conferences. End, conference, uh, end quote. Well, this isn't a, a large evangelical conference, and though I'm white, I'm not a prominent pastor. But this is a worship service. And before us is the opened word of God. And the text before us really opens, it, it opens the door to address this sensitive issue, which I will do in two messages because there's not time to put it all into one. The, the title uh, initially may not seem, that, that, that doesn't seem to come from, from that text, the title An Unprejudiced Church, as we think about being a church for the darkest hour. The challenge to be a, a, an unprejudiced church, it, it, it's a title that comes from an application. I'm just telling you up front where we're going with this. It comes from, from an application that flows from something that Paul says here in this text that has been misinterpreted over thousands of years resulting in harmed people and damage to the church's testimony. So, Paul says these things, but what Paul has said and what Paul was driving at has been, has been misinterpreted, mis- misapplied, and it has resulted in, in tremendous harm. And in some cases, damage to the cause of Christ. Not because of what Paul said, but because of misinterpreting what Paul said. In this text, Paul commends these believers for how they have responded to the preaching of the gospel. Even though though their response to that resulted in hardship. This text reminds us that we just read, it reminds us that the Word of God changes people. It changes people thoroughly. It changes people from the inside out. But it also reminds us that the transformative power of the Word of God is dependent on two things. It is dependent on a right response to that Word. And it is dependent on a right interpretation of that Word. That's critical. Being an unprejudiced church is the result of responding rightly to the Word of God and properly interpreting the Word of God. So not having time to develop both of those themes this morning, I'm going to develop the first one and we'll come to the second one next week. I want to look at this matter of um, 
this proper response, rightly responding to the Word of God because of what it is. So the big, the big point that Paul makes here in the testimony that he writes here is that the Word of God changes people. This is not new to you, but, uh, but it always bears repeating. The Word of God changes people. The Word of God has energizing, transformative power. That is evident there in verse 13. He says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. It effectively works in you who believe. Paul continues his thoughts here, and you see in that word also, which actually, which, which actually points you back. So you go back to, to chapter 1 and, and verse, uh, verse 2, we find that, that Paul there, he says, we give thanks always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And then he, he continues to proceed then in those, in, in those, those next verses to, to spell out what it is that has stirred up this thankfulness. So, he, so he's, looking, he's looking back, and that's going to continue now as he comes here and repeats that thought again. For this reason, we also thank God. It's looking back at what he has said. It's looking ahead at what he is going to say. Here's another reason. Here's another reason we give thanks to, you, uh, to God for you. You see, as Paul is writing, let's remember, he is writing to a young church. He is writing to, to young believers. Most likely, they have, been, they have known Christ. They have been saved for less than a year. They were not saved, the majority of them, out of, out of any sense of, of Bible background. Most of them were not. Some of them were Jews. Most of them were not. They have not come out of a background with any familiarity with the God of the Old Testament in all of those ways. They have come out of, you go back to the ancient world, they've come out of a pagan background where where many gods were worshipped. There were temples all over the place with with all of the rituals. This has been their background. They have been saved out of that. They have been saved for less than a year, but this young church is having an oversized impact on their world. Their testimony is known throughout the city of Thessalonica. Their testimony for Jesus Christ has gone beyond that city. It's gone to that entire region. It has gone to that entire country. How in the world can people who have been saved for that short amount of time, out of no Christian background, out of no Jewish background, how can they be having that kind of impact on their world that quickly for Christ? It's because of what the Word of God was doing in them. They were being changed. They were being transformed. There was a new life that had come into them that had taken over them. And that life went with them everywhere they went. They took the word of God seriously. They took the message that Paul had preached along with with his team. They took that seriously. They drank it in. They soaked it in. And when Paul and his team had to leave town suddenly, they kept going back and rehearsing the things that they had heard and seen that had been taught to them. They took it seriously. They didn't do Bible studies for something to do. They did Bible studies because they they wanted their lives to change. 
Notice in, in, this, in this verse, verse 13, there's, just a, there's an interplay between three words. God, us, and you. There's, there's three, if you will, uh, people or groups that we have in here. God, um, us, and, and, and you. He, listen, what, what, these, what these Thessalonian believers, that's the, that's the you in that verse, what these Thessalonians belie- believers received was what they had heard, Paul says, from us. Okay? From Paul, from his team, from, from the apostles. Paul is definitely in this verse speaking as an apostle. But, but where, did, where did the us get their message? Where did the us get this word that they, that they brought? Were they just passing on an ethnic traditional religion? Absolutely not. The us, that's Paul and his team, they got their message from God. This word from God was an energizing, powerful, effective, transforming word. As we read down through these verses, it's interesting that you see really two very different responses to the message that Paul and his team proclaimed. Some received it. Some opposed it. Verse 13 focuses on those who received it. And the the other verses we'll look at next week brings up the group that opposed it. The Thessalonian church received the word. So so when this this message was was delivered, when Paul and his team came in, and and for the months that they were there as as they taught and as uh, as they preached, how did these people respond to that which was brought to them? Well, in the verse, there's... There's really four words. I don't, think that they're, I don't think that they're necessarily referring to all kinds of different things. There really are, are four words that speak about the dynamic of God's word becoming effective or transformative in their lives. These words are interwoven. First, he says they received the word. They, they received the word. They, they did not reject what was proclaimed. They did not reject what was taught. They may have searched the scriptures. They may have asked, I'm sure they asked questions. They did not reject what was preached. They did not scoff at it. They did not oppose it. In fact, back in chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul says this to them. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word. In other words, receiving the word there in that verse is equal with becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. They received the word. Paul also says they heard the word. They heard the word. And he's mentioned that already in this book as well. Back in chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only. Okay, now, it did come in word. He's just saying that... That there was, there was more to it. it. It came through our very lives, but it did come in word. They heard it from Paul and his team. Chapter 2 and verse 2. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. Chapter 2 and verse 4. We have been entrusted with the gospel. Even so, we speak not as pleasing men, but God, we, we speak it. Chapter 2 and verse 9, we preached to you the gospel of God. So as Paul and his team came, they, they, they proclaimed, they're, they're teaching and they're preaching, and the people are hearing these, these Thessalonian 
uh, citizens who became Christians heard it. They heard it. It's so important. They heard the word. The importance of, of hearing this gospel message is seen in another passage of Scripture. We go there many times. I always love going to it because it is increasingly becoming one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, where, where we're told in, in, that, in that passage that, that if you're going to, to, to see Christ, and we know that the gospel is all about Jesus Christ, so, so shouldn't we be not so much talking about the, the Word, shouldn't we be talking about Christ? Well, you know how you see Christ? This text tells you see Christ through the gospel. You see Christ through hearing the gospel. And so, and so the, the, the text, he says, and, and, and even if our gospel is veiled, okay, so, so there's, you know, certainly there are many out there who this glorious message of Jesus Christ, it, it's veiled, they don't see it. They don't see it. There's a, there's a veil over, over the, you know, if you will, the spiritual eyes over the heart. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So those who are perishing are the unbelievers, as Paul writes. So in their case, the God of this world, there's an enemy, his name is Satan, who is a deceiver, who wants to keep people from seeing Christ, who is very who who goes works overtime to make sure that who Christ is is not seen, is not beheld, is not understood, and is not loved and cherished. That that's probably his primary task. Okay, you think Satan's all about getting you to do bad stuff? Okay, he's got he's got a host that will help him do that. Satan doesn't want you to see Christ. He doesn't want you to see who he is. He doesn't want you to see and understand what he's done. He doesn't want you to see and understand that that's what you need. He does not want you to behold the beauty and the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ because if you do, if you do, you won't be able to help but believe. Aren't we told in Scripture that, that, that those who, who, when they handed Christ over to be crucified, if they had known who he was, they wouldn't have done it. They were blinded. They were blinded. If there's anything Satan doesn't want you to see, he doesn't want you to see Christ. He doesn't want you to see the Son of God becoming a man. He doesn't want you to see him going to the cross for you, for me. He doesn't, want you, he doesn't want you to see a resurrected, triumphant, ascended Savior. He's very happy for you to see a good moral man. He's very happy for you to uphold the moral teachings of Christ. He's all for that. He does not want you to see and behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And so he veils the unbeliever. They can't see. Because if they did, they'd be on their face before him. Save me. So he, there's this veil, veiled those who are, veiling those who are perishing. The, the, the veiling is this idea of who blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ 
And who is Christ? He is the image of God. He is the the very exact representation of God himself. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He goes on. He goes on. For, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Interesting. That's what really Paul has been saying here in 1 Thessalonians, we did not come and, and present ourselves. We did not come with a message from man. We came with the message from God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there's this veil dropped over our spiritual eyes, over our spiritual heart, preventing us from seeing and beholding the beauty and the glory and the worth and the value of Jesus Christ. So, you know, we... We, we give him a head nod every now and then. You know, we, we may sing a song for him every now and then. We may admire his teachings. We don't see him for who he is. We're blind. So we never call out to him to be our savior. We never call out to him to, be, to, to forgive us. We, we, we never look to him to, to trust him to be the one who bore our sin, who, who was raised for our righteousness. And we, don't, we don't do that. Why? Because we're We're blind. Well, how do you remove the blindness? By working harder? By trying to be a better person? It doesn't remove the blindness. Uh-uh. What it takes to remove the blindness, what it takes to remove the veil, is that God has to say something. God has to say, let there be light in your soul. And when God says that, you know what happens? The lights come on, and there's Jesus in all his glory, in all his beauty, in all his gracious power. The same God, what Paul's saying, the same God who back in Genesis 1 was creating the universe, was creating the world, it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's the same God who, who in my heart, in your heart, who sees darkness of the soul that does not see and behold and relish the glory and the grace and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that same God speaks into my soul, let there be light. And there he is. There's Christ in his beauty, in his glory, in his grace. And you can't help but be in love with him. You can't help but fall on your knees before him and repent of your sin and say, God, save me. So how does that happen? Well, according to what Paul says here, it really doesn't happen through visions of Jesus. It happens through hearing the gospel. It happens through hearing the gospel, which is about the glory of Christ. The gospel is about the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you're going to be saved, you must hear that. You must hear that. There in Thessalonica in those months, that's what Paul was proclaiming. That's what Silas was proclaiming. 
That's what Timothy was proclaiming. And you know what happened? God began to speak light into the lives of people there in that, in that city. He spoke light into those, into those people, and, and they were transformed. They were called out of the darkness into the light. They heard. They heard. So, so they received the word. They heard the word. And then Paul says they welcomed the word. They welcomed the word. That, that was their response to what they, what they heard. As, as, they're, as they're listening to the message, as, as Paul teaches and preaches, they are realizing, they are increasingly realizing, this is not the word of a mere man. This is not another religion like, like the abundance that are here in our, in our city. This is not that. This is different. This is from God. They said, Paul didn't make this up. This is from God, and they welcomed it. They welcomed it. Because, as Paul said back in chapter 1 and verse 5, that this gospel, that this word of God came, he said, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's what has to happen. That's what has to happen. Just because you hear a message from the word of God doesn't mean the word of God has done anything in your life. It's because you go to Bible studies. It doesn't mean that the Word of God has done anything in your life. It takes the Word coming in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And that's what happened. The lights were turned on, and these people were changed. And they were changed to the degree that in less than a year, their whole region knows about Jesus Christ. So they received the word. They heard the word. They welcomed the word. He also throws in the word believe. They, they, they believe the word. You see, believers are those who have heard and welcomed the gospel message. They see that the gospel is not man's attempt to save himself, that the gospel is God's message of salvation. Receiving God's word requires hearing it, and through hearing it, the illuminating spirit opens eyes to embrace it as God's word and to behold Jesus Christ. And believing unleashes the transforming power of God's word in a person's life. And then note, note the result of, having, of receiving, hearing, welcoming, and believing. He goes on at the end of that verse and says that the word of God effectively works in you who believe. Effectively works. The, the word goes to work in you. And, and it's interesting that if you see there in the verse, he's, you know, the, the word which you heard from us and welcomed in that verse is the, is the very same as the word of God which effectively works in you. Well, how did it work in their life? Well, you can again go back to the testimony that Paul writes of these believers in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, they themselves declare concerning what manner of entry we had to you and how, and here's, here's a description of how the word effectively worked in their lives. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God 
and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's what the Word of God did in their life. Completely changed them. Completely turned them around from, from, for the most of them, brought up in a religious system of all kinds of gods. And all of those pagan practices of the, of the Roman pantheon. God t- took and turned them away from that so they became servants of the living God. They trusted him. They served him. They believed him. And now their whole life was changed. Their whole life was lived in anticipation of the return of Christ with the confidence that they would be freed from the wrath to come because they were, they were in Christ. Why does this message, why does this gospel do that? Because it's God's word. When God speaks, things happen. When God spoke, a universe came into existence. When God spoke, dead people came to life. This is the revelation of God. It is given by inspiration of God, we are told in 2 Timothy 3.16. Scripture is, is breathed out from God. It is exhaled from God. And where the breath of God falls, life rises. When God created the first man, he formed him of the dust of the ground. And then what did he do? He breathed into him the breath of life. And man came alive. This word is given by inspiration of God. This word is effected by the illumination of God, the Holy Spirit. And illumination, yeah, it it is what the word sounds like. It's turning on the lights. You see, illumination isn't simply about information. It's about transformation. When we talk about the illumining ministry of the Holy Spirit within us, it's not just so we can be smarter Christians. It's so that we can be changed Christians. It's the Holy Spirit who, yes, helps us to have understanding, but says, listen, Mark, you've got to get with it here. This isn't in your life. This isn't true of you. And he begins the convicting work. That's, that, that, that's, that's part of the, the, the illuminating of the Holy Spirit. Not just, it's not just an information thing. A transformation thing. When you truly see, when you truly see, you are changed by what you see. If the word is not changing you, you're not seeing. That's simple. This word, this gospel energizes the transformation of sinners into mature Christ-like saints. This word is at work right now, and it continues to do its transformative work because it's effective, it's operative. Perhaps one of the, one of the best descriptions of the effectiveness of the word is found in Hebrews 4.12. We read, we read these words. Says the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
That's an effective, energizing, transformative word. The word of God is living. That does not mean that the word of God has living stuff in it, but rather that the word of God brings life. It's powerful. That's the same word effective that we have over in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It's, it's not static. It, it, it's dynamic. The writer of Hebrews says, describes it in terms of being sharp and piercing. In other words, the word of God cuts deeply. The word of God pierces all the way through. Nothing can stop it. No part of us is left untouched. Nothing stands in its way of getting right to where it needs to go. You know, it's possible, physically, even to take that scalpel and, and go in and, and have your scalpel deflected by a bone. Moved aside by a bone. Not the Word of God. It's like the Word of God, spiritually, it comes and it goes right where it's going to go and nothing stops it. That's the Word of God. It, it discerns. It judges us. It criticizes us. God's word critiques us. It critiques our beliefs. It critiques our attitudes. It critiques our opinions. It critiques our values and our convictions and our priorities. It critiques us. Funny, isn't it, how God's word always seems to align with our opinions, traditions, and prejudices. Is, is, does your testimony line up with verse 13? Have you received the word of God and welcomed it not as the word of men, but the word of God that's come into your life? This is God's word. This is his message for the world. This is his message for his church. This is his message for you. This is why we preach the word. This is why we teach the word. Everyone in this church that teaches God's word from children to teen to adult, we handle it carefully. This is God's word. This is God's word. It's not my word. This is God's word. This is what accomplishes what God wants accomplished. Has he done that in your life? Has he turned on the lights in your soul to see? You ever wonder why some hear the word and they're transformed and others hear it but nothing changes? Now Jesus told a parable that explains why. It's called the parable of the of the seed and the soils. The, the seed is the word. The soil refers to the hearts of people. Interesting in that story that he told, in each case, the word is heard. But in only one case was it truly received, welcomed, and believed so as to produce. If you're a parent, you know what it means to talk to your child and have them tell you they're listening to you, knowing full well they're not listening to you. The same can be true spiritually. There are there are thousands of things that keep us from hearing, but not really hearing, according to Jesus. Perhaps the influence of demonic teaching that is false or deceptive or just misleading. Remember, Satan knows how to take false teaching and flavor it with tasty bits of truth. He's a master at that. 
Maybe it's because of, of afflictions of all kinds that can distract you or discourage you or maybe even enrage you. Or it could be deceitful desires still within your heart. You want more pleasures. You want more indulgences. You, you, want, you want to consume more of what the world has. For God's Word to change you, you've got to have good soil heart that eagerly hears and welcomes it, that joyfully believes it, that humbly obeys it. A good soil heart treasures the Word of God like a miser grasps his gold, like a drowning man holds on to a life ring. If you're here this morning and you you don't know Christ, you've not trusted Christ, let me ask you this question. Have, Have you responded to God's Word as the Thessalonian believers have you, have you heard it, welcomed it, received it, believed it? I appeal to you to believe this message of forgiveness in life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I plead with you. There's no other way. If there's, no, if there's no stirring in your heart whatsoever, would you do this? Would you cry out to God and ask him to open your eyes? If you're a believer, let me ask you this question. When was the last time anything in your life changed because of something you heard in God's word? I'm not asking when was the last time you heard God's word. I'm asking when was the last time anything changed in your life because you heard God's word? This week? I don't know, has it been a month? Has it been a year? Has it been 10 years? Been 20 years? Let me say a word to us as a church. Church, what, what if we were convinced that the only thing that can change the hearts of people is the Word of God implanted by the Spirit of God? What would that do in our lives, in our ministries, in our outlook of people around us? Church, what if we resisted every urge for something new? that directs us away from God's word? What if, church, what if we did not allow our desire to avoid criticism and be more accepted by our culture to move us away from our absolute commitment to God's word? Church, what if we stopped giving ourselves permission to disobey God's word through our expository exceptions and our avoidance applications? What if we stop looking for loopholes, like the religious leaders of Jesus' day who had a system supposedly built on Scripture that supported their sense of ethnic superiority and, and, and provided for them a moralistic system by which they justified themselves before God? What if we did not give ourselves permission to go there? What if we actually let the Word of God form and correct our every thought, opinion, 
and behavior. I didn't say some, because we're all doing some. We're all, all, all of us are there, at least at, at some. I said all. If we want to thrive in this dark hour, we must be a church that continues to receive, hear, and welcome God's word as God's word. And thus, it is to be believed, it is to be obeyed. Our impact in this world depends on it. That is why, as best we can, we will preach it, and we will teach it, and we will declare the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's up to you to let that word work in you. Pray with me. Lord God, may we humble ourselves before you. This word is powerful, not just because it's some book we have. It's powerful because it's breathed out from you. It's your word. It's your revelation. It is your will. It's your message. Lord, across this room, if there's anyone here who, in all honesty, they've not received it, they've not, they've not heard and welcomed the gospel the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ into their life. God, I would pray right now in this moment, might your spirit kindly, graciously, mercifully open their eyes to see and behold the beauty of Jesus. Please, Lord. Please. And God, as we examine our hearts to honestly answer, when When was the last time your word changed anything in my life? When was the last time something something good happened in my marriage because because of what I'd seen in your word? When was the last time something something good happened in a relationship and maybe something got fixed because, (laughs) because you'd confronted me in your word? God, please work in us, I pray. May we be committed to the word not to be proud of how committed we are to the word. May we be committed to the word because we need to be changed by it. And so we give ourselves to that, Father. May we respond accordingly, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you're here and you know you're without Christ and you need to talk to somebody. You need, let, have him pray with you and, and just show you how you can know for certain. Again, they'll take you to the word, which is what the Spirit of God will use. I would encourage you to come even as we sing because this time of singing is our response. You can have someone go aside with you. They'll open the word and they'll pray with you. I, I do want to say, yes, the invitation remains open when the service is done, but sometimes now's the moment. Believer, maybe there's some things you need to deal with in your life because in all honesty, God's word isn't changing you. That's not good. That's not good. So let's respond to the Lord as we, as we sing and conclude our time.